Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. You're listening to podcast number 146 for June 7th, 2009. You know, I've been experimenting with Windows 7 for a couple of weeks now. Some of the new Windows 7 features will be dismissed as nothing more than eye candy, or even worse, attempts to copy the Mac interface. One of the nation's film giants, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, used the slogan, Ars Gratia Artis, that's Latin, means art for art's sake, and it served them pretty well for decades. In other words, something may be both pretty and useful. As for copying the Mac interface, well, yes, Microsoft sometimes does that. In fact, I wish the reverse were true. I wish that Apple sometimes had the good sense to copy a few of Microsoft's choices, at least occasionally. Some of the Windows 7 features I'll talk about today represent art for its own sake, but that doesn't make them useless. Let's assume that you are not independently wealthy and that you must work for a living. Would you prefer to work in an office with windows that overlook a lake, some trees, and a distant view of mountains, or in an office that has no windows, smells a bit of mold, and has an air conditioning system that, by comparison, makes the runways at O'Hare seem tranquil? The environment in which we work affects our outlook. The fact that Windows 7 allows me to control what my working environment on the computer looks like is welcome. Themes have existed in Windows for many versions. So many that I forget when they appeared exactly. Windows 7 themes have about as much in common with Windows XP themes as the hilltop in Columbus, a good 23 feet higher than the average terrain in central Ohio, has in common with Mount Whitney in California. The new themes are breathtaking, and if you can't find one that you like, either included with Windows or downloaded from elsewhere, then you can create your own. Your choices include a static background or a slideshow. If you choose the slideshow, you can decide how often the images change, and you can add your own images. Then you pick the overall color scheme or create your own. Next, decide which sound scheme you want to use. Windows 7 has 14 choices. Mix and match. Add your own. Turn off the sounds if you want. Your choice. The final selection is which screen saver to use. My choice is none. Unlike Ubuntu Linux, which seems to have something like 100 screen saver options, Windows 7 offers just six, and most of those are pretty lame. But who needs a screen saver anyway? Thirty years ago, when monochrome screens had a burn-in problem, screensavers were definitely helpful. Not today. Just have Windows blank the screen after a few minutes. That's a better choice for the environment, the physical environment, too. Apple's OS X focuses on a specific section of the Preferences pane, but has an option to View All. Microsoft in Windows 7 uses the breadcrumbs approach in the address line. If you're viewing a specific control panel applet, you can immediately return to the full control panel. The full list is pretty impressive, 
and this is a good technique to borrow from Apple. Windows machines have been able to capture what's on the screen for decades. Has Windows been around for decades? It seems like it has. Well, maybe Windows machines have been able to capture what's on the screen for a decade. Enter the Microsoft Snipping Tool. This isn't TechSmith's Snagit by any stretch of the imagination, but it does allow Windows 7 users to select a specific area of the screen and then create a standard PNG file. In other words, it's a big improvement over what's been available. Cynics often say Microsoft Help doesn't, but those folks may have to change their tune a bit. Microsoft Help actually does seem to be helpful. I took a look at a fairly obscure section, the Control Panel's Color Management section, selected Help, and it actually tried to explain things in plain English. Are automatic updates good or bad? (laughs) The answer is yes. For reasons I don't entirely understand, I am inclined to accept automatic updates on Linux systems. I'm more cautious, though, about Windows updates. This may be because I have encountered Windows updates that wreck the system. I've never seen that happen with Linux. During the test phase with the Windows 7 release candidate, updates are largely confined to replacing existing files. Microsoft is testing the update process, so the operating system updates simply replace existing files with exact copies of the originals. If you have other applications installed, say Microsoft Office, for example, and those depend on the Windows update process for updates, you'll continue to receive updates for those applications as they become available. That's it for Windows 7 this week, and if you think I'll be talking more about Windows 7 in the upcoming weeks, well, you're right. The subject of a question on a discussion list I'm involved with caught my attention. It said, digital photography costing more? The person who posted the message said it started with a trip to the local copy shop. In the corner, unpacked but not operational, a high-quality, wide-bed inkjet printer. It prints up to 72 inches wide, but the owner said she was only going to go to 36 inches wide at first, and the pricing list wasn't ready. That was the background. The question involved whether this printer would make a mess of images taken by a mere 4-megapixel camera. Well, this is actually a fairly complicated question. There's more to digital photography than megapixels. Let me say that again. There is more to digital photography than megapixels. Camera manufacturers like to narrow things down to something that consumers can comprehend. Megapixels are easy to comprehend. More is better. But not necessarily. But we'll get to that. The questioner said he was sure the new printer will make my 4-megapixel camera start to look wimpy. Probably not. But the question continued. My wife has a 9- or 10-megapixel camera, but it's a fully auto-point-and-shoot camera with a zoom lens. Not enough control for my artistic requirements. He then issued a disclaimer. Never mind my recent comment on buying cameras. Any reasonable camera will take better pictures than you're capable of taking. Within the explicit and implied questions are many other questions. So I'll try to answer the questions that were asked, as well as the ones that were implied. And I might even answer some of the questions that were omitted, but should have been asked. As a side note, later in this article I'll mention a cheap point-and-shoot digital camera that I own, carry around with me all the time. I bought it at my favorite camera store, B&H Photo, on 9th Avenue between 33rd and 34th in New York City, 
After I told the sales guy I wanted the camera, he asked me if I wanted to buy a case for it. My initial thought was, all right, you're going to make more on this case than you did on the camera, so you're just trying to sell me something I really don't need. But as if reading my mind, he explained that these small cameras are easily damaged by simply being carried around. So I spent the extra 10 or 15 bucks for the case, and every time I pull that camera out of my briefcase, I silently thank the sales guy for his good advice. So sometimes the best advice comes in response to a question that you didn't even ask. In case I haven't mentioned it recently, there is more to digital photography than megapixels. I have a 10-megapixel snapshot camera that I carry around with me just in case I happen to encounter a photogenic situation and I don't have time to run home and get my digital SLR. But the 10-megapixel camera's images are far inferior to those created by a 3-megapixel camera that I used to own. Why? Well, it's because the camera manufacturer, Olympus in this case, but this really applies to all, know that people who don't know much about digital photography think that megapixels is the only measure of quality. You may have heard somewhere that there's more to digital photography than megapixels. If not, let me assure you that there is more to digital photography than megapixels. This particular Olympus camera creates a 10-megapixel image but it does it by interpolating smaller images so that the resulting image is 10 megapixels. For reasons absolutely unknown to me, even at its highest quality setting, the camera seems to apply a massive amount of JPEG compression. As a result, the images are ugly at anything approaching full size. Besides the number of pixels used to create the image, you need to take into consideration the lens used, the sensor inside the camera, the format of the image, whether the image is compressed, and if it's compressed, whether the compression is lossy or lossless, the dynamic range of the sensor from D-min to D-max, the color depth captured, the color depth recorded, and whether any zoom function is optical or digital. Other considerations may come into play, but those are probably the most important ones. And together, these are the reasons why there's more to digital photography than megapixels. The lens. In the old days, old days being the days of 35mm film single-lens reflex cameras, a lot of people spent a huge amount of money to buy an expensive SLR camera. But then they tried to save money by purchasing an off-brand lens. Calling this stupid might be a bit of an overstatement, but it's certainly not an intelligent move. No camera can create a technically superb image if that camera is fitted with an inferior lens. For digital cameras, the sensor is important. Digital cameras generally use one of two sensor types. As recently as five years ago, one type was far superior to the other. That's no longer the case. But the size of the sensor is important. If the camera uses a small sensor and then interpolates the image up to a larger size, the resulting image is going to be no better than what the small sensor could create. In fact, it'll probably be a lot worse because the camera will have to perform the interpolation on the fly. That is always a bad thing. Next, the format of the image. The best possible image format is the camera's RAW format, if it has one. Not all cameras do. This format simply records every bit of data the sensor was able to capture. Usually the color depth is enhanced and there is no compression. 
My Nikon digital SLR creates a JPEG image that's about 3 megapixels, but a RAW image that's close to 10 megapixels. I usually shoot in the RAW mode. The next consideration is compression. Two types of compression exist, lossy and lossless. TIFF zip compression is lossless. JPEG compression is lossy. Lossy compression means that some of the data is going to be discarded. Lossless compression reduces the image size without discarding any information. Few cameras support lossless compression. I don't know why that is. So creating a JPEG image automatically means that your original image, the one you download from your camera to the computer, will already have suffered a significant amount of degradation. If your camera offers RAW, and if you think you'll ever want that image to be reproduced large, use the RAW mode. I mentioned dynamic range. That's the difference between the blackest black that still contains some discernible detail and the whitest white that still contains some discernible detail. It's partially a function of the camera's sensor, partially a function of the file format. Many cameras record and save 24 bits per pixel, and the JPEG format is capable of reproducing 24 bits per pixel. Cameras that offer a RAW format often push this up to 32 bits per pixel, so you get more data, a larger range between black and white. And then there is also color depth captured and recorded. This is a function of the number of bits per pixel, and more is better. Even if the camera's sensor records 32 bits per pixel, it may save just 24 bits per pixel in JPEG format. And last, at least in terms of what we'll talk about today, there is zoom. There are two kinds of zoom on a digital camera. There is optical zoom and digital zoom. Optical zoom is what the lens is capable of. Digital zoom is sleight of hand done behind the scenes. Digital zoom, I think, was probably a function of camera marketing. It's one of the biggest lies you'll encounter in shopping for a digital camera. You might see a camera advertised with a 30 times zoom. That might be done with a 3 times optical zoom and a 10 times digital zoom. If the camera's specifications mention digital zoom at all, simply ignore it. Digital zoom would be more accurately named digital crop and ruin, because that's exactly what it does. The only zoom that means anything is optical zoom, the zoom that can be accomplished by the camera's lens. Digital zoom is done with software in the camera. It takes a small part of the sensor's image and interpolates it larger. The process must happen quickly, on the fly, in the camera, and as a result of that, it's never going to be very good. If you need to zoom an image, take it home, open it in your photo editing software, do it there. Your computer will do a much better job. So the real question that perhaps should have been asked is this. Can I create a decent wall size image with a 3 megapixel camera? Well, I'm glad that question finally came up because there is more to digital photography than megapixels. First, forget anything that anyone has ever told you about DPI or dots per inch or about resolution. Pixels are all that matter. 
A 3-megapixel camera probably creates images that are around 2,500 pixels wide and maybe about 1,500 pixels tall. That would be with the camera in landscape mode. The exact count, of course, will vary, but I'll use those numbers for this example. If you print that image so that it's 4 inches wide, the effective resolution is going to be 625 pixels per inch. How do I get that? Well, it's basic 5th grade math. Divide 2,500, that's the width of the image in pixels, by 4. That's the number of inches that you're going to make the print. 2,500 divided by 4 is going to give you about 625 pixels per inch. So if the image is 6 inches wide, then the effective resolution drops to about 415 pixels per inch. Make it 10 inches wide, and the effective resolution is around 250 pixels per inch. A 10 by 8 print is about the largest image size anyone will view by holding it. When you get to prints that are 14 by 11 and larger, you're usually going to find them on the wall, not something you're going to pick up and hold in your hand. Now, when a human holds a photograph, the viewing distance will probably be in the 6 to 12 inch range. Do you ever see anybody examine a print on the wall from that distance? In most cases, an image on the wall will be viewed from at least 24 inches away, often further. So, if you print your 2,500 pixel wide image 36 inches wide, the resolution will now be just 70 pixels per inch. Oh my, that's even lower than what's on your computer monitor. But, you're going to view it from further away. So the effective resolution will be a good bit higher. When you look at a billboard that shows your local television station's eyewitness news crew, the image probably looks crisp and clear. That's because you're viewing it from perhaps 300 yards away. View it from a distance of just a few feet, and the image resolution, which may be less than 10 pixels per inch, will make the image all but unrecognizable. So, the answer to whether you need to upgrade your camera to produce acceptable wall prints is no. I have several 36-inch wide images of a freak snowstorm in New York City that I took in 2002 with a snapshot camera that Nikon had loaned me. The resolution was just 2 megapixels. If I view the images at 6 to 12 inches, there is some pixelation apparent, although not much. Viewed at a normal viewing range, which is going to be 2, 3, or 4 feet away from the wall, they look just fine. They look at least as good as anything I would have captured with a 120 roll film camera. Why? Well, you may have guessed this already. It's because there's more to digital photography than megapixels, no matter what the camera manufacturers try to tell you. A week or so ago, when I was adding a new function to Firefox, I noticed an add-on that I hadn't selected. The Microsoft Net Framework Assistant was enabled, and I saw immediately that I could disable it, but I couldn't remove it. Why? How did it get there? What was its purpose? What I found is yet another example of Microsoft's seeming indifference to the fact that I, not Microsoft, own the computer. If they want to install an application on my computer, it seems reasonable for them to ask permission from me first. But they didn't. They just installed it. And they didn't even bother to tell me what they had done or why. I have several versions of Microsoft's Net Framework on my computer. I have version 1, 2, and 3. It's there because it's essential for the operation of certain applications that I use. 
the rogue Microsoft application, and I must call it that because it was installed entirely without my permission or knowledge, was added when I allowed the Windows update to install the latest version of Net Framework. That would be Net Framework 3.5 Service Pack 1. In addition to installing the Service Pack, the update rammed an add-on into Firefox and made it non-removable. You know, every time Microsoft does something this astonishingly stupid, I stop to reconsider whether I should really just dump Windows and move to Linux. So what does this helpful application do? It allows Net Framework applications to be installed with a single, possibly accidental, click. So what this does, in effect, is give Firefox one of the security weaknesses of Microsoft's Internet Explorer. Look, Microsoft... If I wanted to run Internet Explorer, I would run Internet Explorer. I have chosen Firefox because it is better, in my estimation, than Internet Explorer. And I'll really appreciate it if you keep your damned hands off my computer. No known exploits exist yet to take advantage of this potential security breach, but you can bet that somebody is working on one somewhere. Worse yet, the Net Framework add-on is installed for all users of the computer, not just the current user. That amplifies the security concern, and that's why the Firefox add-on control panel can't remove it. When Firefox installs an add-on, it installs the add-on for just the current user. After all, different users might want to have different sets of add-ons. Did no one at Microsoft stop to consider this? I should note that a passing clue-by-four salesperson apparently stopped at Microsoft and sold them a spare clue recently. The company has changed the update so that it installs the Firefox extension for just the current user now, making it removable. But the clue was apparently of fairly low quality because Microsoft still doesn't ask for permission or tell you what it did. And that is just plain wrong. Even though it doesn't seem to pose a problem currently, you might want to rid your computer of Microsoft's rogue Firefox add-on. If so, you're going to have to edit the registry, and the standard disclaimers apply here. Editing the registry is potentially dangerous, and errors can cause Windows to be unstable or even to stop being able to boot. So before you start, make sure that you know how to recover from a registry disaster. The process itself is relatively easy, although it's long. It involves 13 steps. You'll find the entire list of instructions on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And good luck. In short circuits, the Palm Pre goes on sale this week. Some see this as competition for Apple's iPhone. Others see it as competition for Google's G1 phone. In a bet-the-company move, Palm has abandoned its own fading platform and is now chasing Windows applications. The Pre will work only with Sprint, a company I opted out of several years ago because of the horrid customer service. But having said that, I must also admit that everything I have heard or seen about the Pre so far has been positive. So does the Pre really compete with the iPhone or the G1? Well, not really. Both of the other phones have at least dozens of applications, and in the iPhone's case, hundreds of applications available for users. The Pre, on the other hand, will have maybe... 20 when it goes on sale. So in this regard, it reminds me of the Opera browser when compared to Firefox. 
But that really isn't what the pre's intended market is all about. Palm is marketing the pre to existing Palm customers. These are people who are used to trying to make those quirky Trio or Centro phones work with Sprint. There are millions of users who might be in the market for a pre. PC Magazine rates the pre as a 4 on a scale of 5. And a recent review says the pre is the sexiest handset since the iPhone. It's given high marks for design, interface, and the ability to consolidate email contacts and calendars. On the downside, the magazine lists the limited number of apps, less than perfect reception from the phone, and its short standby battery life. In today's program, I praised and criticized Microsoft, and as much as I criticized Microsoft, I have to credit Bill Gates with the kind of spirit that is missing among so many of the world's richest people. This week, Gates said that billionaires should give away most of their wealth to charitable causes. He says that most would even find that they enjoyed the process. So I was wondering, does this make Gates a commie, socialist, or just a responsible citizen? The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has given away a large amount of what Gates has earned from Microsoft. Bill Gates was quoted as saying he thinks that billionaires should give away the vast majority of their fortunes, although he specifically mentioned that they should definitely leave some for their kids. Gates said that in Norway this week. He continued, I'm a great believer that great wealth should go from the richest to the poorest. Gates was in Oslo to talk about polio and how it could be eradicated. Saying that the goal was within reach, Gates noted that polio could be the second major communicable disease entirely wiped out. Smallpox was eliminated in the late 1970s. So if you have to place a rogue application on my computer to continue earning money so that you'll be able to give it to worthy causes, all right, you have my permission. At least as long as I can remove that application by jumping through a few hoops. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.